This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 32, our discussion with Stephen Harrison about what we learned at the Easel Congress 2023 and the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions about drug development, plus a vault episode addressing a similar topic at the last year's ILC Congress, the one now known as the Easel Congress, also featuring Stephen and Jorn Schottenberg. This conversation continues the discussion between Stephen Harrison, Jorn Schottenberg, and me around the Maestro series of trials for risk. It starts with us clarifying the actual data Stephen shared regarding liver volume. And we move on from there to discuss how liver volume might be interpreted if we collect this data point more frequently and more generally, how little we understand what exactly is going on in the liver and how it will respond to different therapies. And as a result, how robust the opportunity to learn from the expanded resmeterome data will be as these trials come due. Stephen then brings us back to the specific data by discussing its safety profile. First, he shares the practical implications of safety for these drugs in everyday use, and then provides an encouraging safety profile for the trial. As he does so, he shares thoughts about how to interpret, and more to the point, how not to interpret, a diarrhea metric. Jorn responds by stating that the safety and liver volume profiles suggest a reduction in liver pain and associated improvements in quality of life, which might be important with European regulators. As the conversation winds down, Stephen shares a little lipid data and expresses his hope that the rolling submission with possible priority review and this profile, he hopes we will hear something, more hopefully something positive, within the next six to eight months. Our entire key leader opinion and advocate team has been struck forcibly by how many studies provided significant advances in knowledge and how some of these advances might change our underlying understanding of drugs, diagnostics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, how we think about the disease, let alone how we treat it once drugs are approved. It's quite a lot to digest and very exciting to consider, particularly an episode like this that talks about drugs that might come in the next couple of years. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Hey, Stephen, can I step in one second and make sure I understood what you just said, the way I think about stuff, which is that the cirrhotic livers in the resmeterum trial were about 25 or 30% larger than a normal liver would be, and the reductions that resmeterum generated were about 25% back from there. Did I get that right? Stephen Harrison. Yes. You know, we can measure liver volume relatively easily with MRI, but we don't do a lot with it. Okay, so Jorn, you're big into the NIT space, more so than I am, and so maybe liver volume reduction could be used as a non-invasive test for fibrosis improvement. Why don't we look at liver volume content reduction of a certain percentage correlating to one-stage improvement in fibrosis? Jörn Schattenberg. I think that's a great idea. And the paucity of data we're collecting in those phase three trials now with outcomes linked uh, down the road will help us to define these type of measures that really haven't been looked at before. I mean, you mentioned HCV, but who was interested in liver size and HCV? Everybody looked at eliminating the virus and everything else was secondary. So I think even beyond, you know, helping patients, the advancement of science we see through these large trials with the linked NITs and MR data that's being generated is unprecedented in this area. Area, and it will for sure help us to develop new concepts and how to assess disease progression, regression, and liver disease um, over the next year. So I'm aligned there. So a, cu- a couple of comments. First of all, you're in the episode that we did, the extra show that we did with Arun Sanyal and David Kleiner last month. David actually talked about that whole idea that hepatitis is really
really easy. You get rid of the virus and everything follows. And he wishes that Nash was that way, but it's not. You never really know what's going to happen. Things go up, things go down, things go in all different kinds of directions. And I think as a result, secondary measures that might not matter in a linear predictive world do matter, number one. Number two, part of my statistical training is that every time you go from a multidimensional world to a world with fewer dimensions, what you're trying to do is the best job that you can of predicting what matters. And that's when you do these discipline multivariate kinds of ways. If you think about the history of how Nash CRN came up, not to fault it any more than anybody else does already, that's not a multivariate exercise. That's a qualitative assessment of a semi-qualitative assessment to try to build a semi-quantitative assessment. So we don't really know what matters. We know some things we can measure, but we don't really know what matters. And Stephen, this, this is the third time I've said this in a week on this podcast. I thought your comment on liver volume in the Meister Nash presentation was, to me, the single most eye-opening thing I heard in that entire session. Maybe in all the drug trials in the entire meeting, because it points once more to how little... You take that in the semi trials where after 72 weeks, we've got a bunch of liver fat reduction and no regression of fibrosis. And those two facts tell me how little we know. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I, you know, we never worried about liver volume reduction in liver disease before. That hasn't either because we didn't need to or because we didn't have the technology or a combination of both or additional factors. But the fact is, it's present, it's measurable, and now we need to understand why it's occurring and we need to understand what its impact is. And, you know, we struggle with understanding response to therapy. I think that's going to be one of the issues also with resmedrome once it's in the approval pathway. And we know that the NDA is currently being filed right now. They, we know also that there's a request for priority review, and, or there will be. One of the issues that's going to come up is how do we monitor response to therapy? And in resmedrome, I showed this data from the forest plots that I presented. MRI PDFF is very predictive of response to therapy, but not everybody has MRI PDFF. So uh, we, it's hard to measure liver fat content reduction accurately outside of that. We obviously can't measure liver volume reduction outside of that. But we do have something called sex hormone binding globulin. And what I showed there was that increases of at least 120% or more were correlated very nicely to response relative to placebo. So maybe there's an opportunity there. I like ALT as well. That drops very nicely with treatment. However, not everybody with NASH that has advanced disease has an elevated ALT. So I don't think that's going to be ubiquitous across the board as a measure of response to therapy. But before we dive into that, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't spend a bit of time talking about the safety of the drug. Because when we think about therapeutic index of drugs, safety gets an equal billing to efficacy. And that's no more true than in the setting of fatty liver, where we're talking about millions and millions of patients. And our job is to first do no harm. So are we putting patients at risk by prescribing resmedrone? Well, we were looking for the F2, F3 patient, I believe, in the label, likely is going to be the case. So do we have NITs that can inextricably tease out an F1 from an F2 or an F3 from an F4? The answer is no. We're not that great with our NITs. So what if we put an F1 on therapy? What if we put an F4 on therapy? Are they going to be injured or hurt in any way? The answer is no. I mean, if you look at the safety database that's been accumulated with this drug, thousands and thousands of patient years worth of data from F1s, F0s even, all the way to to F4s. The number one adverse event is diarrhea and nausea is number two. And both of those tended to occur immediately upon dosing. Average duration was around two weeks and did not tend to worsen 
after that point, and most patients got better. If you look at the diarrhea that's reported in the electronic data, ca- data capture system, more than half of it was just worsening of already present diarrhea or intermittent loose stool. As a gastroenterologist, we struggle with defining diarrhea in clinical trials because diarrhea means something very different to Yorn and I than it does from an average coordinator just filing this in the record. So increasing stool frequency could be diarrhea. Intermittent loose stool could be diarrhea. But that's not the cholera diarrhea. There's a bit of a difference. I agree with you, Stephen. I'm not worried about that site profile. Uh, it's the way we capture them in, in a clinical trials. It's very important, very rigorous, very thorough, but it's typically not what's seen in clinical will hamper applicability in clinics. Yeah, as a general rule. Yeah, you might have some people that have some change in the frequency and consistency of their stool. I'm sure there might be people that actually have frank diarrhea that may not tolerate it. But I think that number is going to be very, very small. Stephen, very, very small subjective. What, what percentage, remind me, actually discontinued? It was on the order of slow single digits. Yeah, that, to, to me, that's where I go because I, pe- people work very hard in drug trials to keep everybody in, despite which, is, as we see in some of the papers that get reported, you get discontinuation rates around GI effects that run a lot higher than that, say GLP-1s, dual agents, uh, the retatratide data at ADA. So when you say low single digit discontinuation, what you're saying to me is even in the hands of a GP, this is probably easily managed. Yeah, this is straight from the presentation. Treatment emergent adverse events leading to study discontinuation was 2% in the 80 milligram, 6.8% in the 100 milligram, and 2.5% in placebo. And there were no study discontinuations after 52 weeks in the uh, in the 100 milligram dose. In summary, I would say it, it was pretty safe. And that, that data was exciting because it wasn't previously released in the press release. So I think this is where uh, the novelty came in. You know, following up on safety and connecting this with the liver volume reduction, I think the benefit and quality of life and decrease of right upper quadrant pain is something I'd really expect from this type of MOA. And this is a, clearly a benefit. I've told sponsors when they ask me about, uh, you know, Europe and Germany in particular, you might want to really want to show direct patient-related uh, improvement and estimate that because that is something the regulators over here are, are heavily um, uh, looking at. Yeah. You know, the, the drop in atherogenic lipids, the, the percent change in APOB of around 20% is something that we should not overlook. You know, if we follow these people out, if we were looking at a, a MACE outcome, which we're not, that drop in APOB has been linked in other studies to CV risk reduction. So obviously we didn't enroll high-risk CV patients in this particular trial, and that's something we're trying to move the needle on at Mosaic, you know, our, our meeting that we have looking at combining endpoints for MACE and MALO or major adverse liver outcomes. But I think the data, it's very promising. I think that it's been dosed in a large number of patients for a significant number of days. And I'm anxious to see what happens here in the next six, seven, eight months. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingmatch.com. Next week, we will be back with other key opinion leaders to discuss a different aspect of what we learned from EASL and ADA. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.